Hello everybody, my name is Luke Marshall and you are listening to Things Observed, the number one podcast in all the planet, the whole universe and all other universes actually. And this is Luke Marshall, the Time Magazine Man of the Year. I beat out Volodymyr Zelensky and Joe Biden and Bill Gates this year. So I'm pretty happy about that accomplishment. And I am in the process of moving now, and so I'm going to get myself a new studio, and I can't decide if it's going to be at the top of the One World Trade Center, maybe get a room at Mar-a-Lago, something like that. But we've got big things in the work, but for the time being, we are going to be talking about Lyme disease and biological warfare involving ticks all over again but we're not going to cover the same material that we discussed in the last episode in the last episode we talked about plum island there is going to be some mention of plum island but we're not going to cover the things today that we covered in the last episode so we talked about plum island the animal research facility that is just off the coast of lime island where lyme's disease just so happened to pop up all of the sudden in the 70s and lime just happens to be the closest mainland place to plum island a animal research facility where we know that they were messing around with ticks and we talked about eric traub the nazi scientist who was brought over during operation paperclip to do work with the u.s biological warfare program And so we're kind of going to build off some of the stuff that we talked about in the last episode, but it's going to be altogether new ground. And we're going to start today's episode by talking about Willie Bergdorfer. And we mentioned Bergdorfer real briefly in the last podcast. He is the discoverer of Lyme's disease, or I should say the bacterial pathogen responsible for Lyme disease, a spiral-shaped bacteria or spirochete as it is called, and this spirochete is named Borrelia burgdorferi, obviously taking its name after its discoverer, um, because it is a Borrelia bacteria, and burgdorferi, as in burgdorfer, who is going to be the subject of part of today's episode. And Willie Borgdorfer was born to a humble family, a police detective father, and a shoekeeper mother. And his father was quite the character, you could say. He was a binge-drinking, womanizing man with a secret second family that Bergdorfer would discover later on in life that he had. And he was heavy on the discipline, at least according to Chris Newby, who wrote the book Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. I'm holding it here in my hands. got quite the cool cover. But it's a good book, um, and I'm also going to be drawing today from Lab 257 by Michael Christopher Carroll, The Disturbing Story of the Government Secret Germ Laboratory, which goes more into Plum Island. Actually, in Chris Newby's book, there's only one mention of Plum Island, so you get some other interesting information, but that's going to be where a lot of what we draw on in regards to Bergdorfer comes from is going to come from Chris Newby's Bitten. Both are good books, but both of them have some problems. They ultimately are good in the information that they present, and they uncover some new interesting stuff in it. Sorry if you heard my phone go off. I am turning it on silent now, so that should not happen again. But um, both books are good. They have some problems with it. I think some of the uh, 
I think the offers buy a little bit into the mainstream account of things, but all in all, it's good and it has a lot of interesting information in it and it definitely brings into question a lot of what we know about Lyme's disease and some of the history of biological warfare as it relates to entomology and to ticks and arachnids and stuff like that. So um, both good books, but anyhow, um, back to Bergdorfer. I hardly got started on him before I got onto that tangent. But as much of an unsympathetic character as Carl Bergdorfer, Willie Bergdorfer's womanizing alcoholic father with the second family was, he would instill in his little Swiss boy Willie the desire to strive for excellence. Um, he really wanted him to have a better life than he had to go on to do big things. And so Willie would take that in um, internally. He would, you know, deal with that. And he would eventually make it to university despite kind of this being against the odds. And this would come at the sacrifice of really having much of a social life. He would not spend too much time with friends. He was not attending parties. He probably wasn't dating the super hot chick at school. He was too busy doing homework and studying so that way he could make it to university. And on his journey toward university, he would be teased by the rich kids due to factors that Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, describes as his coarse German, uh, his cheap suits, and inability, inability to play the piano, violin, or cello which is kind of funny because I think even among the rich kids today, that'd kind of be seen as lame. It's much cooler to have a big TikTok or something. I don't know what the young kids are up to these days, those crazy kids with their newfangled technology and all their shenanigans, but it must have felt like it was all paying off for Willie when he finally made it to the University of Basel, a prestigious school in Switzerland, where he would enter into the doctoral program for parasitology, tropical bacteriology, and helminthology, which I learned is the study of worms. So at the University of Basel, his academic super supervisor would be a guy by the name of Rudolf Geige, whose family had founded J.R. Geige AG, which had started as a textile dye company before moving into the chemical business. And today, it is probably best known for producing the red dye on the Nazi flag. So, Geige decided to get into studying tropical diseases instead of getting a job at the family company that liked to do business with both the Germans and the Allies during World War II. And in old age, Geige would actually write a novella titled Siri Top Secret that, in the words of Newbie, describes the spy activities he observed during his travels. And we cannot be sure if Geige himself took place in these spy activities, but we can know that he would place a number of students and institutions that would be involved with the U.S. biological weapons program. So one can really, I guess, only scratch their head and wonder where one um, when one learns of Bergdorfer's later career trajectory, and that can really only make you wonder what this Rudolf Geige guy was actually up to. And, you know, we can't definitively know if he's a spy or not, but Geige definitely kind of 
sets off some alarms that make us question, you know, having all a bunch of his students go into the U.S. Biological Weapons Program, writing this Siri top secret novella. novella. But I just want to say, what's the deal with spies writing novels about spycraft and novellas or short stories or what have you? It seems like this is a thing that a bunch of guys who are in intelligence get into. And it just makes you wonder if they kind of see themselves as, you know, like James Bond type characters. I mean, even the guy who wrote the James Bond novels and stuff, uh, my mind's going blank on him. I almost said Arthur C. Clarke, but that's the 2001 A Space Odyssey guy who uh, is sus in his own right. But anyhow, I, I can't remember um, his name, but I mean, I, even he, I'm pretty sure, was involved with British intelligence, if I remember correctly. I bet you Jimmy Fallon Gong has an episode that talks about that in his novels as Spycraft series. But anyhow, um, I should quit talking about things that I can't remember and don't know about, so that way I don't falsely and misinform my audience. But it was under Gagi where Willie would become uh, enmeshed in his lifelong obsession with ticks. And this is an obsession that would last him for all of his life. And it was um, when he came up with this lifelong obsession with ticks, Gaigi would was going on expeditions to Africa, which would last months, where he would gather ticks from huts. And he, with Willie under his tutelage, would study the spirochetal bacterium responsible for African relapsing fever and all kinds of other things involving soft body ticks and the parasites inside of these soft body ticks and it was willie's research into spirochetes and newbie points this out in bitten that would um eventually lead him you know kind of set the basis for later work that he would do with lyme's disease where he would figure out about the spirochetal nature of the bacteria responsible for it and right now i just googled it ian fleming is the author of James Bond, and now I'm going to try and do a quick Google and see um, if I can figure out whether or not he actually was intelligence. And Ian Fleming was in office in the Royal Navy's Naval Intelligence Department, so I'm not going to do any more research into that, because typically it's best to do your research before you start podcasting, so sorry if I sounded like I was absent-minded for a second, I just had to confirm that. But, um... So, you know, we have this set, uh, the trajectory of Willie Bergdorfer's career, this research into spirochetes underneath Geige. And so it was during this time where Bergdorfer would come up with a new method of tick dissection in order to help him keep up with Geige's demands. So after Bergdorfer's research would conclude, he and another student would flip a coin to decide the fate of their postdoctoral research. One of, these part, um, one of these positions was in Sardinia, Italy, uh, studying the Geige family company's new insecticide, DDT, which is kind of humorous. And DDT is now banned in America due to its toxicity and negative environmental impact and all of that stuff and possibly being carcinogenic as well. And um, so the other position would be at the U.S. Public Health Service at the Rocky Mountain Laboratory in Hamilton, Montana, and both of them wanted the more posh job studying DDT in Italy, 
but Willie would end up losing the coin toss and make his way to the Big Sky Country, what he would later refer to, I believe, as God's Country. So he would also meet his wife out there when he worked at the lab. So I don't think it ended up being too bad for him. And he would live in Montana, I think, for the rest of his life, you know, when he wasn't going off other places doing research or whatever. So I don't think it ended up being too bad for Big Bergdorfer in Montana. But the lab had been set up to study Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is yet another disease transmitted by those pesky arachnid bloodsuckers, the tick. And so when he arrived at the lab, Willie would learn that it was the National Institute of Health that paid for the lab by creating and distributing vaccines. And so it was here at the lab in Montana that Bergdorfer would further hone his skills and learn about Borrelia from his mentor, who was one of the world's leading experts on the subject. And Borrelia is like a family of bacteria that can be, you know, infect ticks and some of it can infect people and what have you. And as mentioned before, the spirochetal bacteria responsible for Lyme's disease is Borrelia burgdorferi. So, so far, Willie's story may seem somewhat innocuous. I mean, you could even say that he was helping people with this new job at the Rocky Mountain Lab, you know, coming up with ideas for new vaccines and stuff that could possibly help disease. Not that vaccines don't ever have their problems, which I don't know why the last episode had a warning about COVID-19. I felt like I hardly mentioned COVID in my last episode, but it got the COVID-19 warning, probably just because I'm talking about biological warfare. I probably said something about the theory of Lyme's disease leaking from a lab or something in the description. So some sort of bot you know, picked it up. I don't know. Does Spotify have bots that like pick up if you just even say COVID in a podcast that you do and refer you to the CDC or the World Health Organization or whoever the hell it refers you to? So this episode will probably have a similar COVID warning, but I don't know. Some of you guys probably saw that and are like, oh, hell yeah, this is going to be an extra based episode. So I don't know, but who cares what Spotify's up to? So anyhow, you know, Willie's story may seem innocuous or maybe even like he's up to some good stuff, despite, you know, the vague suspicions that one may have about Gigi or whatever. But things would begin to take a markedly different tone when Bergdorfer arrived at the Suffield Experimental Station in Alberta, Canada. And this is when he would, at least as far as we can surmise, begin to get a glimpse into the murky world that is rife with moral turpitude. That is the world of chemical weapons and biological weapons. So he would soon learn that ticks weren't only of interest to bookish Swedes such as himself, but they were also becoming an interest to the germ warriors of the Cold War area, era. So as a paper from the U.S. Army Chemical Corps titled Summary of Major Events and Problems from the Fiscal Year 1959, that just rolls off the tongue, but anyways, what this report says is, In 1953, the Biological Warfare Laboratories at Fort Detrick established a program to study the use of arthropods for spreading anti-personnel biological weapon agents. The advantages of arthropods as biological weapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that, they ma- so that a mask is no protection to a soldier, and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous and so this shows that 
you know, there was an interest among the biological warfare people at Fort Detrick who operated, you know, along with their allies in Canada out of the Suffield Experimental Station and in all kinds of other places, you know, I don't know, say the Plum Island Laboratory um, had an interest in arthropods. And, you know, we'll see later some of the other interests that they have, you know, specifically in, in ticks and all kinds of other things but at the Suffield Experimental Station in Alberta Willie would walk in a gas mask alongside other researchers and military men across the snowy flatlands where he would see what newbie said um, looked like hundreds of white mounds like a battalion of melted snowmen but I don't believe newbie specifies in her book but this was some kind of animal that had died and Willie, in his letters, which Newby would glean much of the information she obtained about Willie's life from, um, wouldn't say exactly what it was, you know, they were experimenting on, but a 1953 Special Weapons Annual Report would say that sarin gas was being tested around the time that Willie was present at the Suffield Experimental Station. And actually, while I was reading Newby, this is, you know, later on in the book than when it's talking about that. But there was an incident where they were testing, I believe it was also sarin gas, and they were trying to drop it on a strip of land where they had guinea pigs on the runway in this bullseye area. And they would accidentally drop the sarin gas sooner and kill like 2,000 sheep or something like that, like this. And there's just this picture of all these sheep just as far as the eye can see dead in a field which is pretty sad and goes to show that you know as careful as they sometime tried to be that accidents did happen and we'll talk about some of the other accidents that happened as a result of this type of research later on in the podcast but anyways so you know at Suffield the Canadians alongside the U.S. and the United Kingdom would conduct a multitude of tests with chemical and biological weapons and Bergdorfer would go to the Suffield Experimental Station and at least to our knowledge just as kind of his introduction into the world of biological weapons. Some of the other agents that they were working on at the time included anthrax, brucella, plague, and the extremely deadly neurotoxin botulinum toxin. And this is when Willie would become one of the 13,538 civilian U.S. chemical and biological weapons program uh, civilians who were, you know, working with this stuff that was managed by the U.S. Army Chemical Corps out of Fort Detrick, which was also where the Special Operations Division, which I believe we mentioned briefly in our last podcast a few times, worked in conjunction with people in the CIA on biological warfare and methods of delivery of biological weapons and stuff like this. So this project would include the subject of last episode, you know, Plum Island, as well as like the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah and a mass production facility for biological agents in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, you know, the heartland of America, which, you know, if you're asking me, uh, I wouldn't choose an island like Plum Island because it's so close to places, but if I was which i would not but if i was going to mess around with biological and chemical weapons i probably wouldn't do it in the center of america um, but willie would um went to canada in the first place to go to calgary to sit in on a meeting of entomological warfare experts where he would soak up all the information that he could about infecting fleas ticks flies mosquitoes and chickers and turning these wep we into weapons of war so 
In order to secure his job at the Rocky Mountain Lab, so now we're past, you know, Willie's introduction at Suffield Experimental Station, but in order to secure his job back in Montana at the Rocky Mountain Lab, Willie would take on a large number of biological weapon programs jobs because he initially had a visa to, you know, work in the United States and do his research, but now that he was married and I believe his visa ran up he was now a citizen and he needed to secure a job at the rocky mountain lab and we'll refer to newbie for a description of some of the work as well as his newfound place as the tip guy the guy with a knack for turning those eight-legged creatures into agents of biological warfare so newbie says one of his ongoing projects was to develop more efficient ways of artificially feeding ticks with potential biological agents he did this by force-feeding them through glass capillary tubes containing agents for diseases such as fever, tularemia, Wiles disease, epidemic typhus, Asiatic relapsing fever, leptospirosis, and the rabies virus. Each vial, if shattered, might inflict untold misery on anyone exposed to it. There was a purpose behind this madness. In most cage cases, agents from one region wouldn't thrive inside ticks from another region because it takes many generations for a microbe and a tick species to develop a mutually beneficial relationship where one species doesn't kill the other. When Willie found a compatible pair, Fort Dietrich would add that agent-tick combination to its list of potential biological weapons. The weapons designers were looking for a tick that wouldn't arouse the suspicion of an enemy country filled with an agent for which the target enemy population would not have natural immunity. Because of his lab's extensive collection of tick colonies, Willie was often the go-to person for special tick requests for bioweapons projects. For example, he sent ticks to the Canadian counterpart Howard B. Newcomb of the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited for Newcomb's studies on radiation-induced mutations of various ticks and microbes. So now we have Bergdorfer. He's the go-to tick man, the expert on making eight-legged bioweapons. So while this work usually went off without a hitch, one instance of the dangers of this kind of work, I mean, I guess except for, you know, Lyme's disease or something like that, which is more speculative, but is when his technician would come down with a case of relapsing fever and he had sent out ticks to some other dudes to study and he would have to tell them like hey you know let's ask that one of my guys just got relapsing fever and it was kind of this whole conundrum but willie would begin to spend a good portion of his time at camp dietrich which is in maryland you know fort dietrich um where he would work underneath his project manager manager Dale W. Jenkins, who was chief of the entomological division of the U.S. Army Chemical Corps. And Dale Jenkins, that's just like the most placeholder name I feel like I've ever heard of. It's like if you were writing a book and you named a character Dale Jenkins, you would very quickly go, that doesn't even sound like a real person. I need to come up with a better name than Dale Jenkins. But... When Bergdorfer would first go to Dietrich, he would get a tour from Jenkins who would show um, him to the world of biological warfare, which included bacteriology and virology labs, 
Building 470, which was often called the Anthrax Hotel, which was a seven-story building that housed the deadliest microbes. And there was also the 8-Ball, which was a 1 million liter cloud chamber used to test airborne weapons on not only animal, but humans as well. Yeah, that's right, humans as well. And between 1954 and 1973, um, an instance of them testing on humans, it was when around 2,300 um, volunteers would found themselves being tested through the 8-Ball in what was titled Operation White Coat. And many of the people who volunteered were Seventh-day Adventists who were conscientious objectors who, in place of going to the battlefield, they would decide to be infected with tularemia, which has symptoms that include fever and skin ulcers. And as well, they would be infected with Q fever, with symptoms that include muscle and joint pain, headaches, diarrhea, vomiting, confusion, chills, and a host of mostly other flu-like symptoms. So officially, none of the white coat test subjects died, but some claimed to have lingering symptoms. But what should be said is that only around 23% of these volunteers were surveyed, and the military opted to not test their blood and one of the subjects has claimed you know serious health repercussions as a result of these experiments and so the picture um i've seen this picture of subjects it's actually in the book bitten uh, another good reason if i was going to re recommend one book over the other between bitten and lab 257 which they both have just you know different information from one another and they're both if you want to you know learn a lot more about this worth a read but in bitten there's some pretty crazy pictures so if you like a book i mean I, I like a book mostly that has good juicy information that helps me in my research into the parapolitical truth or the truth about whatever subject it is that i'm reading on but also it doesn't help to throw in a few um it doesn't hurt to throw in a few interesting pictures um so in Bitten, there's this very interesting picture of test subjects who are inhaling aerosolized agents through the eight balls ports. And so you, you know, basically see these guys who are sticking their faces <laughs> into like these little ports where they're breathing in aerosolized disease from, you know, like tularemia and Q fever. And so it's a it's a pretty interesting photo. So Sorry for the Seventh-day Adventist, but I guess that they did sign up to it, but maybe they didn't know exactly what it was they were signing up for. But anyhow, back to Bergdorfer, our Swede friend in the biological weapons uh, research world. Uh, Willie would begin to work alongside James Oliver, who worked under Jenkins, and he would later become an entomology professor. And Oliver was working on this method of dispersing weaponized ticks from planes, and he and Willie would work together to dream up newfangled ways to increase reproduction in ticks to keep up with the army's demand, but they ultimately could not get the ticks to lay more eggs. So they could not get those ticks as revved up as they needed to. But Oliver and, you know, is going to be kind of like Bergdorfer's partner in crime when it comes to creating these tick, you know, biological weapons. And so Willie would also do 
some super awesome stuff like dissect the brains of baby mice that had been infected with Colorado tick fever virus so that way he could isolate the virus from the tissue of their brain and then force feed various tick species with it in order to see their ability to infect people or other hosts with this sickness and he would end up creating you know a vaccine for this virus after doing this kind of work and he would test it on 27 people at the Montana State Prison where he would notice a marked depressing effect on the bone marrow and the antibody forming apparatus which in simpler terms is just a fancy way of saying that it suppressed the human immune system and so something that newbie would say was Willie and Jenkins main objective when working together was to Develop a reliable protocol for mass-producing rat fleas carrying lethal doses, lethal doses of Yersinia pestis, the bacterium that causes plague, a disease that killed an estimated 50 million people in the 14th century. Figuring out how to transform these organisms into a reliable bioweapon that could be deployed from an airplane posed a multitude of problems. Oh man, I got the computer that's saying that I need an update remind me tomorrow so where were we sorry folks um figuring out how to transform these organisms into a reliable bioweapon that could be deployed from an airplane posed a multitude of problems willie fed the flea plague's germs through a mouse skin stretched over pools of infected blood heated to a certain temperature after a few days the microbes would secrete a slime that formed bloody clumps in the flea's esophagus preventing blood from entering their stomachs this would send the fleas into a feeding frenzy as they tried to dislodge the clot with warm, fresh blood. These blocked fleas would regurgitate the clumps, infecting the intended target, whether that was a lab animal or a human enemy. Part of Willie's experiment was to figure exactly how many plague microbes to feed the flies so that they were, not, that they were blocked but not killed. So we literally have Homeboy tankering with the plague. So, really smart stuff. Um, for as smart as these scientists are to do shit like this, it makes you wonder, you know, they're smart enough to, to do... I can't remember where it's from, but there's some sort of quote like, you know, you're smart enough to do these experiments, but you're not smart enough to ask, should we do these kinds of experiments? So, I, that's always something that kind of befuddles me. You know, if you're some guy who's smart enough to come up with nuclear weapons, you just think that you would have a little bit more wisdom to make you go, should I do this? Should I not do this? I guess I probably shouldn't do this. But I guess that these people are more concerned with testing the bounds of human potential and things like that. And I guess that there always is kind of that innate human drive for power and dominion over others that manifest itself in ugly ways, rears its ugly head when it comes to the world of science. But not that science doesn't have its uh, utility to it, but damn, sometimes I just do not trust scientists further than I can throw them. And typically, I can't throw people very far because people tend to be heavy and they're not designed to throw like some sort of discus or something like that. And if I were to get stronger, if I were to have some sort of radiological experiment 
you know, mutate my genes in some sort of way to make me like the Incredible Hulk, I probably would no longer trust people as far as I could throw them, because then I could throw them pretty far. But anyhow, back to the subject at ham. At ham. Damn, I don't even like ham. Why do I have ham on the brain? So, you know, Willie would also work on how to keep these fleas alive in bomblets during long plane rides by using dental wax. And so when the bomb would be deployed and detonated, this dental wax would melt and they, you know, fleas would pop out. And also inside the bomblets, there would be wetted sponges inside the capsules to keep the fleas from drying out and all this stuff and so Willie was also working not only on how to infect fleas with stuff like the plague but how to keep fleas alive how to drop them from bombs and so in 1954 in what was called Operation Big Itch the army would test dropping uninfected fleas from airplanes at Dugaway Proving Ground on a bull's eyes bull eye grid on an airstrip with cage guinea pigs in the vicinity Earlier when I was mentioning the sarin gas mishap, maybe I was confusing the guinea pigs on the bullseye strip with this. Maybe they did that with both. Maybe that's just kind of protocol when you're working on dropping shit from a plane that's, you know, deadly and you want to see if it kills stuff. But anyways, they did kill a bunch of sheep with a nerve gas mishap. But anyhow, so, you know, they're dropping these fleas uninfected fleas you know they're not dropping the the plague down but they would drop these fleas on an airstrip of caged guinea pigs in the vicinity and cluster bombs that were filled with 670,000 fleas would be dropped which I don't know I mean I'm sure that's an estimate I don't know how exactly you calculate exactly how many fleas that you're you know putting in a bomb lid I assume that you don't just you know grab one flea by the uh, by by the other 670,000 times and put it in the little capsule but the bombardier the test pilot and an observer would all receive flea bites but it was still considered a success given that 47 of the 125 guinea pigs had fleas attached to them which if they were planning on possibly you know dropping fleas infected with the plague on those evil communists and whatever you know country it would have been at the time you know um it's interesting you know that it's still considered a a success despite the men flying the plane and dropping them you know had they had flagged would have very likely developed the plague as well but Willie would also experiment with a number of other things like membrane feeding the oreo rent oriental rat flea with a particularly dangerous strain of bubonic plague known as the alexander strain so now not only are we messing around with the bubonic plague but let's work mess around with the most deadly strain of the bubonic plague or if it's not the most deadly one of the deadlier strains of bubonic plague and he would also infect mosquitoes with the trinidad agent a deadly strain of the yellow fever virus And, you know, there's a lot more that could be said about Willie and his days of experimentation. But let's just go ahead and jump a little bit forward in time to when he would make his confession that would change the way that we have to think about Lyme's disease. Or at least it should change the way that we think about things. But in that Snopes article I mentioned last week, they mentioned Newbie's book and, you know, they make criticisms of, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, when Bert Dorfer made these 
this confession that he was, you know, in the later stages of Parkinson's disease and, you know, he, he can't be trusted or whatever. I mean, Snopes just blows. They totally blow. They suck eggs. They can eat my pants and my shoes and my shirt after I haven't showered in quite a while and have done a good deal of manual labor. So Snopes can get bent. But anyhow, so enough talking about Snopes. Let's talk about something that matters. And that is Willie Bergdorfer making this confession. So Chris Newby, the author of Bitten, and also just real quick, I mean, when it comes to it, and and you'll see some of this when I read a passage here in a second, but Bergdorfer if you read the segments of Bitten where it recounts this confession that is made in this videotape that Chris Newby is sent by the independent filmmaker Tim Gray, who he made a documentary called Under the Eight Ball after his sister died of Lyme's disease, which theorizes that you know Lyme can be attributed to a bioweapon leak, and he would end up videotaping Bergdorfer's confession. But anyhow, if you read i don't know if you can find a video of just the you know unedited confession tape that would be interesting i should have done some more looking into it but even if you just read from the book his confession it really seems like he's you know pretty cognizant or whatever and he would be in the position to know things about Lyme's disease and whatnot, considering he's the guy who discovered it. He was a pioneer in the field of studying ticks and entomology and all this stuff. So anyhow, I mean, Snopes, you know, if it, you know, went against their neoliberal paradigm or whatever for you to believe that the sky was blue, they would call into question that and say false on the fact checked. So anyways... But back to the confession. So um, the first hour of the interview with Gray, he, you know, asked Bergdorf for some entry level questions about Bergdorfer's career and his discovery of Lyme. And he would eventually, you know, probably after trying to build up some trust and what have you, steer the conversation into Willie's work for the biological weapons program which Gray had learned from a few journal articles discussing Bergdorfer feeding deadly microbes to tick. And, you know, he kind of just read between the lines and concluded that this must have been part of Cold War biological warfare research, you know. So, I mean, I don't even think in, that there was explicit mention that Bergdorfer was involved with biological warfare research, but Tim Gray, he just kind of you know, read between the lines, and he said, oh, you're feeding these deadly microbes to ticks, you know, during, you know, close to the height of the Cold War and whatnot. Yeah, that's fishy. He probably had something to do with the Fort Detrick crowd of guys, and, you know, Newbie would learn as much as she did about him because she would end up getting access to Bergdorfer's files, both from the National Institute of Health as well as his personal files Um, where there was all kinds of documents that she would be able to read, all kinds of letters and personal correspondence with people. So she's really, you know, drawing from a bunch of different things. But anyhow, you know, Tim Gray kind of just, you know, read between the lines. And so now we will read a nice little section from Bitten 
but it won't take me too long to get through it. And I think that it will be better than me just, you know, finding some sort of way to recite this confession. I think it'll just go by quicker and be more effective than that. So anyways, newbie writes, let's, um, and this is starting off with Tim Gray talking to Bergdorfer. And so, you know, we are now in the midst of this interview. This is the book relaying the interview. So starting off with Tim Gray. Let's take your scientific work, studies that I have discovered that were published in 1952 and 1956, Gray said, one being the intentional infecting of ticks, the second being the recombination of four different pathogens, two being spirochetal and two being viral. From a simple procedural standpoint, I think it's safe to assume that the purpose of those studies at the height of the Cold War on the heels of World War II was to ensure that we were able to keep up with the rest of the world from a biological warfare standpoint. Did you question that? Willie paused, then replied, Question. Has Borrelia burgdorferi have the potential for biological warfare? As tears welled up in Willie's eyes, he continued, Looking at the data, it already has. If the organism stays within the system, you don't even recognize what it is. In your lifespan, it can explode. We evaluated it. You never deal with that as a scientist. You can sleep better. Later in the video, Gray circled back to this topic and asked, If there's an emergence of a brand new epidemic that has the tenets of all those things that you put together, do you feel responsible for that? Yeah. It sounds like throughout the 38 years I may have... The lab director telephoned me. This is the director so-and-so. I got somebody here from the FBI. Will you come down and we'll ask a few questions? Exactly the same thing. I recall all these discussions, Willie said. Finally, after three hours and 14 minutes, Gray asked him the one question, the only question he really cared about. Was the pathogen that you found in the tick that Alan Steer, who was the Lyme outbreak investigator gave you the same pathogen or similar, or a generational mutation of the one you published in the paper, the paper from 1952. In response, Willie crossed his arms defensively, took a deep breath, and stared into the camera for 43 seconds, an eternity. Then he looked away, down and to the right. He appeared to be working through an internal debate. The left side of his mouth briefly curled up, as if he's thinking, Oh well. Then anger flashes across his face. Ja, he said more in German than English. So, I mean, as I mentioned, at this point, you know, Willie is suffering from advanced Parkinson's disease. And he, you know, is, you know, kind of struggling through the interview. And obviously this is pretty heavy stuff to be discussed in the interview. And he would not end up divulging any more information, even though that Gray would question him for a very long time especially for an old man with parkinson's he would like asking questions for another four hours after that but bergdorfer really wouldn't release anything that is all that informative to us but he would look out at the, he would look out the window at the conclusion of this interview and he would say something which is just kind of like ominous and oddly poetic he would say the winds are blowing out of the canyons you know, because they're out at Montana and stuff. So, you know, there's this, you know, mountain view outside the window. Um, 
But anyway, so Newbie after this would go to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland and review along with Tim Gray the Willie Bergdorfer papers that had been recently released by the NIH. And they would find that some of the numbers of some of some of the number slides from the period of time that Bergdorfer discovered Lyme's disease were missing, and that there was also no folder for the co-discoverer of Lyme's disease, Alan Steer, who we mentioned just a second ago, in the alphabetized, you know, folder system. And where Steer's folder should have been, there was another folder there, and the tab was erased, and they had someone else's name ran over it, and there was nothing inside there. So, you know, just kind of fishy. And they would also find a film negative labeled The Swiss Agent, which weren't referenced in any of Berdorfer's letters that Newby had access to at the time. She would learn more about this when she got a hold of his personal letters. But Newby would later discover that this Swiss agent that is photographed on these negatives was actually Rickettsia Helvetica. And so Newby would interview Bergdorfer herself, but still wouldn't get any incredible, insightful information when it came to Lyme's disease. I mean, Bergdorfer would say a few interesting things, like he would admit to inflicting fleas with the plague there. And before this, he would say, how is doing stuff that the Nazis used to be doing? Which uh, is very interesting when you take into account what it is that we know about Eric Traub, another guy who doesn't even make an appearance anyway during Bitten. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, with the two books that I've been using as the main resources for the past couple, epi this episode and the episode before it, that um, is as similar as the subject matter is. The information in the two books, there's like very little overlap between the two. So, it, um, I mean, if you want to learn more than I'm already sharing in this podcast, in the last podcast, go check out those books. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not talking about there, you know. And I've also been drawing from, you know, a few different articles and stuff like that. But you can, you know, learn more about a lot of the stuff that I talked about in those books. But anyways... Um, Willie would also admit to tinkering with Colorado tick fever virus in this interview with Newbie by lowering its antigen. And antigens are these molecules in their outer surface. Um, they're like the outer surface of an, on the outer surface of an invasive microbe that the body recognizes as intrusive, and you know, then the body sends out a signal of the invasion. And by lowering the antigen, what Willie was trying to do, and he, you know, admitted this when being questioned by Newbie, was making it to where whoever this was used on, they could not test for it, you know, which obviously from a biological warfare standpoint would be very useful, although very evil. <laughs> but Newbie would eventually gain access to even more of Willie's documents and letters from his private collection. And this would actually come from a guy who I believe worked at like Brigham Young University or something like that. He was this Mormon guy, but his son had Lyme's disease and a pretty bad case that caused, you know, personality changes in him and kind of led to some erratic, scary type behavior. And he was very concerned with figuring out the truth and, you know, any possible cure for Lyme's disease. And so he would figure out about Newbie's investigation and offer her access to all of this stuff. And it was from this that that would lead to Newbie discovering more about the Swiss agent, which the Swiss agent truly only further complicates the already murky and mysterious world of Lyme disease. Because, 
there isn't a whole lot of funding compared to other things like AIDS or something like that when it comes to Lyme disease. And it's kind of just a mysterious disease that we don't know this much about. And it doesn't really seem like the medical authorities are all that interested in figuring out more about it. Which, you know, some of it might just be the profitability of it and all the incentives that exist like that. But one can also only wonder if at the higher highest levels, if, you know, maybe they're afraid that if we dive too deep into Lyme's disease that we might figure out something that's not too pleasant. But anyways... The uh, So Willie would discover the Swiss agent in, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, I've tried to look up the pronunciation of a lot of things in this episode, but this I did not look into, but he would find the Swiss agent in Nucatel, Switzerland, and he would discover it in 1978 when he and some other researchers were collecting ticks to screen for rickettsia, um, which is just kind of like Borrelia. I mean, it's just another family of... But anyhow, but when he returned to the lab in Hamilton, Montana, he had begun to analyze these Exodes racinus ticks that he had collected in Switzerland. And so soon, three never-before-seen microbes would be discovered by Bergdorfer when he was looking at these ticks. And the Swiss researchers would also, you know, help make these discoveries as well. But they would find a spotted fever rickettsia, one that did not exist before, a cattle protozoan similar to Babesia, and the infectious larval stage of a parasitic deer worm. And so Willie would dub the new rickettsia the Swiss agent. And so that's what Newbie had seen on the photo negative that she had obtained at the, uh, you know among the Willie Bergdorfer papers from the NIH. But after the dissection work would um, conclude, he would discover some of the strange properties of this weird rickettsia, the Swiss agent. And what was even stranger is when he began testing it in relation to the outbreak from Lyme, Connecticut. And so, you know, we discussed last episode how in... Newbie claims that it started earlier, but, you know, I think, I mean, I'm, if you just Google, it'll say that, you know, Lyme's disease started appearing in 1975. But anyways, once again, just another one of those weird things in the complex world of Lyme. But anyhow, so Newbie explains, on April 12, 1979, he quietly began testing Lyme patients' blood samples against the European Swiss agent antigen and known disease-causing rickettsias. The blood samples reacted strongly only to the Swiss agent antigen. This meant that the rickettsias from Switzerland and Long Island might be one and the same species or perhaps closely related. With the discovery of the Lyme spirochete still two years away, Willie kept pursuing a hypothesis that the Lyme outbreak was caused by the same organism that was making the Swiss goat herds sick. By August 1980, he was confident enough with his experiments to share the test result with the East Coast investigators working on the disease outbreaks. So, you know, Willie would mentioned this Swiss agent in his correspondence with people until all of a sudden all mention of the Swiss agent and court you know connection with Lyme's disease was dropped from the discussion and was no longer mentioned in the correspondence between Willie and the Lyme investigators. And so one can only wonder what the reason is for that. 
But now I'm once again going to read just a brief little passage, and this is from an article on Stat News, and they would actually write this after coming into some of the documents that were in possession of Newbie that she had received from Willie Bergdorfer's personal files, and the article is called Swiss Agent Research Unearths New Lyme Disease Mystery, So, and it's by Charles Piller, so I will try to remember to put a link to it in the show notes, but if I do not remember to put a link to it. It is the Swiss Agent Research Unearths New Lyme Disease Mystery by Charles Piller. And so it says, At a government lab in Montana, Willie Bergdorfer typed a letter to a colleague reporting that blood from Lyme's patients showed very strong reactions on a test for an obscure tick-borne bacterium he called the Swiss Agent. But further studies raised doubts about whether he had the right culprit. And 18 months later, in 1981, Bergdorfer instead pinned Lyme on another microbe. The Swiss agent test results were forgotten. Now, Stat has obtained those documents, including some discovered in boxes of Bergdorfer's personal papers found in his garage after his death in 2014. The papers, including letters to collaborators, lab records, and blood test results, indicate that the Swiss agent was infecting people in Connecticut and Long Island in the late 1970s. And scientists who worked with Bergdorfer and reviewed key portions of the documents at Stat's request said the bacteria might still be sickening an unknown number of Americans today. While the evidence is hardly conclusive, patients and doctors might be mistaking under-the-radar Swiss agent infections for Lyme disease, the infectious disease specialist said. Or the bacteria could be co-infecting some Lyme patients, exacerbating symptoms and complicating their treatment and even stoking a bitter debate about whether Lyme often becomes a persistent and serious illness. And so, you know, this obviously complicates what it is that we are looking at when it comes into the world of Lyme disease. But I think it's interesting, I mean, just to go back to the interview between Gray and Bergdorfer, I mean, Gray asked him, was the pathogen that you found in the tick that Alan Steer gave you the same pathogen or similar or a generational mutation of the one you published in the paper from 1952? And, you know, Willie would say, yeah, which is, you know, kind of this stunning admission that, you know, Lyme has something to do with biological warfare research. And yeah, he does have, you know, the later stages of Parkinson's or whatever. But I don't think that we can just write off, and especially in conjunction with all the other evidence that we have seen, um, you know, about the, the locale where we see Lyme's disease start to come about and, and all this other stuff. I just don't think that we can throw out a hand, especially with the discoverer of you know, Borrelia Burgdorferi, Willie Burgdorfer saying that this has to do with his biological weapons research. And so this is, you know, a lot of information to take in, but I think it seriously demolishes the, you know, kind of mainstream idea that Lyme disease only comes from, you know, uh, ecological ecological changes you know in the environment and stuff and you know the replenishing woods and you know blah 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 you know it doesn't explain why we see these sudden onset we, we covered all that in last episode if you want to learn more about that you can check out last episode and um 
so I mean, it's this is just all very interesting stuff, and I really think brings into question what it is exactly that we know about Lyme disease. And the story of Willie Bergdorfer is certainly an interesting one. And it, at the very least, if it doesn't prove that you know Lyme's disease is some sort of biological weapons leak, or who knows, hell, it could be an intentional thing. I don't know what the reason for that would be. It does just show us that the U.S. Biological Weapons Program was interested in using ticks as a vec... As... Excuse me, everybody. I kind of just had, like, the urge to cough for a second, but then I just kind of brought it back. Um, anyways, it shows that the U.S. Biological Weapons Program was interested in using ticks as a vector of biological warfare. So all very, very interesting stuff and really brings things into questions. How many th times am I going to say this brings stuff into question? But perhaps a good place to end the story of Willie Bergdorfer is a note that was left atop the many documents found in his garage by Newbie. And it reads, I wonder why somebody didn't do something. Then I realized that I am somebody. So that's kind of one of those things that steals the wind from your cells, a little bit of a punch in the gut, makes you just kind of go, damn. But anyhow, now let's talk about another possible example of tick biological warfare. And as always, you know, with a lot of the stuff that we talk about in this episode, it relates to the Cold War, but not to the Korean War, not to the uh, Russians, but this is going to relate to Cuba and Fidel Castro and all of that stuff. So let's get into the Cuban connection. All right, so ticks in Cuba. Let's get into it. So Chris Newby has said that she met with an anonymous CIA covert operative who she describes as a tall, flat-topped, big-eared Texan who had taken part in a mission in 1962 under friend of the show, not really, but someone who we've discussed in detail before. I also discussed him on William Ramsey Investigates, so if you guys want to learn more about him, I talk about him there, but Brigadier General Edward Lansdale. And we initially talked about Edward Lansdale in relation to the Imperial Japanese uh, Golden Lily operation and how all of that gold that was taken during them you know, looting 12 different Far Eastern countries, ended up in the hands of the CIA, and it was basically used as a black budget for all kinds of nefarious things, whether that be rigging elections against the communist and leftists in foreign countries, or, you know, assassinations, just all kinds of crazy stuff, and probably crazy stuff that we don't even know about. But we also talked in that episode about Lansdale in relation to all kinds of other things. His being in the precursor to the Phoenix program, some of the weird stuff that he did in the Philippines in relation to squashing the communist rebellion that was going on there, all the weird psyops that he did, draining a guy of his blood and staging it as a vampire attack in order to scare you know, the communist in the Philippines, all kinds of crazy stuff. 
Um, so yeah, check out the third installment of the Blood and Gold series that I did if you want to learn more about Edward Lansdale and his relationship to all those things I just mentioned and even more, even stuff that might possibly relate to the Kennedy assassination. I personally think that the evidence for him being involved with it is somewhat weak, but you know, there are people like L. Fletcher Prouty who accuse him of, you know, having some sort of involvement with the Kennedy assassination. And I definitely don't count it as an impossibility, but I mean, there's plenty of people, whether it be Dulles or G um, Angleton or whoever, you know, who are CIA guys who are of a lot more evidence in relation to the Kennedy assassination than him. But nonetheless, Lansdale is someone who we've discussed before and here's another story in which he shows up. So this Texan, this anonymous former CIA covert operative that Newby spoke with, and I guess that we do have to take this story with a grain of salt, you know, because it is an anonymous source that Newby is drawn from. But in the course of four separate interviews, Newby would relay the story of this Texan guy. And he would say that in 1962, Lansdale led a crew of sheep dip operatives which basically means that you give them um, different identities to where that way they can't be traced back to intelligence. Um, most of you guys probably know what it means to be a sheep-dipped operative, but he would fly them out to, over the waters of the Caribbean, and they were headed on their way to Cuba in the night in order to avoid being seen on radar, you know, flying low to the ground. The crew was aboard a C-123, and the pilots were dressed in uniforms with red, white, and blue Air America shields. The passenger and cargo airline owned by the CIA, and they had done all kinds of things. They transported drugs during the Laotian Civil War. And if you want to learn more about that, check out The Politics of Heroin, The CIA, and The Global Drug Trade by Alfred W. McCoy. But we, and, and there's, I'm sure, plenty of other good sources on this stuff, but we don't have time to dive into Air America right now. But, however, the cargo that they were carrying in Cuba in 1962 was not opium. At least they had something in addition to opium if it was aboard the plane. I wouldn't put anything past the CIA but something arguably just as deadly, if not more so, at least if you are maybe a pig or something like that. But anyways, as they approached their target in the dead of night, the Texan would drop the contents out of the boxes when the pilot told him, it is time. And so the door would open and he would drop the first box and he would scream, what the fuck? When he realized that they were filled with ticks. So he had quickly dumped the second box after the first box and be done with it. But perhaps the Texan who had just been brought into the fold of the CIA fresh out of university thought that this is not what he had in mind when he had be promised when he had been promised adventure, you know, when he was joining up out of there. But anyways, actually, I shouldn't have said the pig thing. I'm jumping ahead of myself from um, because the Texan who was mentioned on this story, his kid, when he got back, would end up coming down with some sort of horrible. I can't remember what it was, but some sort of horrible virus. And I actually think that his kid would pass away if I'm not wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. It's been a little bit since I've read Bitten 
But um, so I'm talking about the wrong thing because whatever this was, you know, assuming that's what infected his kid is transmissible to humans. And when he would talk to one of his superiors and be like, hey, does this have to do with the tick business that I did, what my kid has? He goes, I can't say anything, but what I will tell you is burn all of your clothes. So anyways, um, but that once again, got ahead of myself bringing up the tick business. But um, on March 13th of that year, 1962, Lansdale had been presented with a memo from the Department of Defense in the Special Group on the Cuba Project, or as some of you guys know, Operation Mongoose, which we talk about Operation Mongoose, and the third installment of Blood and Gold, and I also talked about that a little bit on the William Ramsey Investigate show. But it was very possibly referring to this tick drop from Newby's anonymous CIA operative source when it said, On a most discreet, strictly need-to-know basis, defense is to submit plan by the 2nd of February on what it can do to put a majority of workers out of action, unable to work in the cane fields and sugar mills for a significant period for the remainder of this harvest. It is suggested that such a plan consider non-lethal biological weapons insect-borne. And this is Task 33, Cuba Project, in what is a top-secret memorandum from Brigadier General Edward Lansdale, January 19, 1962, for those of you who want to find the whole thing. But this was part of Operation Mongoose, which began in November of 1961, and this was led by Lansdale on the military side and CIA guy William Harvard on the Intel, Harvey, not Harvard, William Harvey on the CIA side. So now the specifics of this possible tick biological weapon attack can't be specifically pinned down as a lot of the other projects that were part of the Cuba project or, you know, Mongoose, whatever you prefer to call it as it was later named. But the plan was set in motion by the Kennedy brothers, the Operation Mongoose, that is to get rid of Castro and his government. But, you know, it's very likely that this backfired on the Kennedy brothers, specifically JFK, you know, because, you know, we don't have time to get into it. But it's very likely that anti-Castro Cubans were, you know, possibly involved with the assassination. And this, you know, there was the Bay of Pig fiasco and all kinds of other stuff that would put Kennedy at odds with the CIA guys, which tends to not be a crowd of guys that you want to be at odds with. But I don't think that I need to, you know, twist the arms of you, listener, to uh, believe that it is likely that the covert operations against the country, you know, that are described in that memo above was Cuba. You know, we know that a lot of stuff was going on to uh, mess with the Cuban communist government and to try and discredit it in the eyes of the people. But... On March 13, 1962, the Joint Chiefs of Staff would make a proposition to Kennedy to attack itself and blame Cuba. And as you guys probably know, this was Operation Northwoods, a you know proposal for a false flag attack. And you know Northwoods was a response by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to a request from Lansdale for a brief but precise description of pretext, which would provide justification for U.S. military intervention in Cuba and I'm not going to bother going into it anymore although I could it's fresh in my mind after doing the William Ramsey show not too long ago 
but we have already been talking about things for a while and there are plenty of other sources that you can go to including my third episode on blood and gold but there is all kinds of other you know sources people who are a lot brighter than I am and who can give you a better rundown like Peter Dale Scott or whoever but anyways to get back to the issue at hand um, let's talk about another potential attack by America on the Cuban government that happened between 1964 uh, well let's just start with this between 1964 and 1967 the Cuban government would accuse the U.S. 10 separate times of carrying out biological warfare against the country um, was it 67? It might have been 1976. Forgive me. But anyways, the Cuban government would accuse the U.S. 10 separate times of carrying out biological warfare against the country. And, you know, this isn't really difficult to fathom when we consider all the other instances of U.S. biological warfare research and probable attacks on other countries. You know, like stuff. There's a lot of stories going on around the Korean War about possible chemical warfare and you know biological warfare and you know there's also the stories of people like frank olson you know uh who probably didn't jump out of a window of his own volition but anyways you know and it also isn't difficult when one puts into perspective that um at least some of these attacks or you know outbreaks or whatever that happened were at the hands of the united states because, I mean, just to put it in perspective, you know, we have the Operation Mongoose Lunacy that's going on. You know, everything from plans of poisoning Castro cigars with botulism toxin or exploding cigars or infecting scuba gear with tuberculosis bacteria. And then there's also, you know, things like MKUltra Ultra Subproject 146, which was partially declassified and it's from 1964 and it describes a redacted plant biologist creating a philosophy of limited anti-crops warfare which included using cane smut on one of cuba's most valuable most valuable crops sugarcane to formulate a basic approach to an attack on redacted country so one such example of possible biological warfare against the cubans is when on may 6 of 1971 Pigs in a Havana hog farm came down with African swine virus, which is not good news if you're a pig or a country who has a large amount of pigs and that is central to your economy like it was in Cuba. Because African swine virus has a near 100% fatality rate for swine. So it's no good, and the symptoms include diarrhea, fever, anorexia, skin blotching, and spontaneous abortion. And so 730,000 pigs, by some estimates, you know, some say more around 500,000, but hey, let's go with the higher number because why not, um, would have to be slaughtered and set on fire in deep trenches. And this wasn't a video from Cuba at this time period, but I actually don't know where it was from. But I just happened to be so unlucky one time to, it was probably on Twitter or something, but to stumble upon a video of a bunch of pigs in trenches being set on fire. And they didn't even kill the poor pigs before they did this. And it was very horrific, you know, just seeing all the pigs inside the flames writhing around and squealing, just a cacophony of squealing, dying pigs, something that's 
very much etched into my memory. That's why you got to be careful what you look at on the internet because some things are a little bit more difficult than others to forget. And even as much as I've desensitized myself to the horrors of the world, uh, there's something about the pig video that was particularly grisly, you know, even more than, you know, some of the stuff that I've seen of, you know, people getting shot in war zones or, you know, Azov battalion guys, you know, torturing people over in the current conflict, you know, between Russia and the Ukraine and, you know, all the other nasty stuff that I've watched, you know, watching videos of the Twin Towers collapse and trying to <laughs> ascertain whether it's a controlled demolition, you know. Sometimes it's weird things like pigs in trenches on fire that just kind of get to you for some reason. But with pork, to get back to the subject, with pork production being pivotal to the Cuban economy, the, you know, and the production being halted for months, this was obviously devastating on the cult on the country and this was also probably used by many in the american media you know to blame communism for the hardship of the country and you know as if this is some sort of failure on castro you know despite the fact that this could you know be traced back to american intelligence meddling in the country assuming that this is a biological weapons attack that it was responsible for it but what is extra interesting in regards to our discussion of this is that the virus can be transmitted by ticks. And here's another thing that's interesting is that the virus had never before existed in North America except for where else but Plum Island. You know, because this sickness is indigenous to East Africa and the only place in you know North America that it had existed prior to then was at Plum Island, which was a big, the main subject of our last episode. So this is, you know, certainly interesting. But in the words of the author of Lab 257, Michael Christopher Carroll, which is another source that we've used for this past couple of episodes, I've already mentioned that, but Carroll writes, The USDA lab held no less than seven virus strains in its freezers since 1954, courtesy of the U.S. Army Germ Warfare Program. In June 1963, Plum Island began a long-term project to develop information on the biological and chemical properties of African swine virus aiming at recognition of virus strains. This research included isolating and growing various virus strains collected from around the world, running experimental vaccine trials, and testing modes of virus transmission using test, test pigs in different types of ticks. So, very interesting. But let's continue diving a little bit deeper into it because that is not the only information that exists when it comes to it, but that's already sus enough as it is. But many researchers believe that this was no naturally occurring swine epidemic, but rather that anti-Castro saboteurs, possibly being, you know, anti-Castro Cuban exiles in Miami with the backing of the CIA, had deliberately introduced this virus as a form of both biological and economic warfare, you know, with the aim being destabilizing the economy and creating opposition to the Castro government. And Castro himself would actually endorse this view that the U.S. was culpable. He would say, it could have been the result of enemy activity. On various occasions, the counter-revolutionary worm pit has talked of plagues and epidemics. 
And the worm pit he is referring to is the anti-Castro-Cuban exiles in Miami and other places who had a history of involvement with the CIA. Uh, like I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but I think that is um, that a lot of the people involved with Operation 40, if I'm not mistaken, were involved with the CIA. But anyways, I mean, they're just kind of like how the white Russian community was or something like that who, you know, came over and they tended to be of the wealthier class from the country that they came from, you know, so obviously they're going to have some sort of opposition to communist or leftist politics. And so they would get in bed with the CIA and try and do all kinds of funny business in order to, you know, get back at the country's governments from which they came from. But Let's just for a brief moment contemplate the theory of a natural migration of the African swine virus to Cuba and see if it makes more sense than biological weapon. Um, so most who subscribe to this theory, at least to my understanding, say that food waste from Spanish aircraft were fed to Cuban pigs. But what this fails to account for is that Cuba had a strict importation quarantine as well as the fact that investigators in Cuba who were looking into this outbreak said that the virus broke out in two separate locales that shared some distance from one another. And this has happened, you know, simultaneously. So we have African swine virus, you know, show up in two places at the same time, and it's not like they're right next to each other. So that doesn't particularly make sense if this is some sort of, you know, uh, natural occurring ep epidemic you know but many people have also said that due to these two separate locations having outbreaks at the same time you know that this is an indicative of an intentional seeding of the virus and i mean perhaps it's you know that's not the case but the logic follows to me but there's still even more to the story so john cummings and drew featherston would add another dimension to this tale when they would release an article for Newsweek titled Cuban Outbreak of Swine Virus Leaked to the CIA, which, you know, it's kind of self-explanatory what the article's about, but they would write, with at least the tacit backing of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency officials, operatives linked to anti-Castro-Cuban terrorists, introduced African swine fever virus to Cuba in 1971. So where were they getting this from? Well, once again, we're going to be talking about an anonymous source, but their source would tell them that he was given the virus at a now defunct U.S. Army base in the Panama Canal Zone that hosted the Army School of the Americas. And at this Panamanian base, um, it was called Fort Gullick, they would stage Army-CIA joint ventures in Latin America and the Caribbean. They would have Green Berets training mercenaries for jungle warfare. You know, I mean, it was like one of those kinds of places, just like how they had, you know, bases where they would take, you know, Mujahideen back in the day to go fight in Afghanistan against the, the Soviets. And, you know, oh, I wonder where Al-Qaeda got all this money and power came from, you know. I mean, now I'm getting off track, but that's why, like, when people talk about 9-11, there's really no way not to blame the U.S. for it. I mean, I think, in my opinion, it's pretty obvious that it was some sort of inside job, you know, with elements of the American government and possibly, you know, other governments like the Israeli government. And obviously the Saudi, at least the Saudi embassy, had to do something with, you know, getting all these 
hijackers passports and stuff like that but i mean even if you believe that al-qaeda did it i mean then you gotta look at american intelligence involvement with you know arming and funding al-qaeda and, and stuff like that you know but i i digress but you know so i mean we have fort Golic. they're start staging these army cia joint ventures you know training mercenaries the green berets are there so you know the source claimed that the virus would be would be taken to the Panama Costa Rica border via motor motorboat before going to a fishing trawler and a CIA source on the trawler said that the virus was taken through the Caribbean Sea to the American owned Navassa Island and that this package would finally went to the eastern shore of Cuba which is just very close to Guantanamo Bay <laughs> where it would finally make its way into the hands of anti-Castro operatives at least according to this source from the Newsday Boys which kind of sounds like a cute bunch of little kids, you know, back in the day saying, paper, got your paper, you know, the Newsday boys. Yeah, sounds sounds cute. But Michael Christopher Carroll would write, where did purified vials of African swine fever virus come from? According to the federal government, Plum Island is the only location in the United States where African swine fever virus is permitted. No one will say on the record that virus for the Cuban mission was repaired on Plum Island and sent to Fort Golick. However, given the frequent traffic between Plum Island and Fort Detrick, samples with or without the USDA's foreknowledge of the ultimate purpose could have been sent by courier to Fort Dietrich for transshipment to Fort Golick. Declassified documents uncovered reflect exchanges between the two labs at the time of other virulent germs like Rift Valley fever, Venezuelan equine encephalitis, pleuronemonia-like organisms, tuberculosis, bovine type, strain 854, and equine infectious anemia. So, just, you know, to kind of get to wrapping things up, the author of Cutting Edge, A History of Fort Detrick, um, Norman Covert, which, damn, what a name to write, you know, uh, History of Fort Detrick, the last name Covert, explained how the CIA could have been involved with something like this through compartmentalization in the existence of CIA insiders at Fort Detrick. And he would document, you know, uh, he, I mean, he would say there were CIA people who infiltrated the Fort Detrick laboratories. They did their own work, and we know what they did with LSD and other psycho illnesses. They had their own little cell there. They worked on their own, and I suspect that a very small circle of people knew that. You know, so I mean, we have these Fort Detrick guys, and we have the CIA has infiltrated Fort Detrick. And, you know, we have all this connections to Plum Island and stuff. So it's not unreasonable to think that a small group of people and the intelligence community who wanted to mess with Cuba could get a hold of this African swine fever virus and that they could get, you know, the uh, virus to, you know, anti-Castro Cubans who are just willing to do anything in order to delegitimize the government in the eyes of the people and to get rid of the communist in power there you know so that way they can go back to being the wealthy families the uh uh you know upper class in their former country and so you know i couldn't find any definitive proof of you know this being a biological weapon attack and the sources from both you know newbies bit in and the newsweek article 
you know, chose to remain anonymous. So, I mean, the stories told, though, do seem to make sense of an otherwise strange outbreak, to say the least, you know. And, you know, the official story, I feel like, has some holes in it. So, you know, their stories also mesh, you know, just with everything that we know about the American intelligence community and their paranoia when it came to communist countries um, and Cuba specifically, you know, which had long been in the crosshairs of the cold warriors that held the reins of power at the time of the African swine fever outbreak. And so, you know, there's just another dimension to the story of Plum Island and ticks as biological weapons carriers. And, you know, so I feel like we've done a pretty good job in both the last episode and this episode of exploring, you know, ticks as a vector for biological weapons and all the U.S. intelligence and military interest in using ticks as a carrier of biological weapons in order to get back at those damn communists, those reds, the pinkos. So, anyhow, I've enjoyed this episode. Something that I've just realized, I'll, you know, no promises, but I'll probably have to come up with a topic that isn't related to, you know, biological warfare, because both with the anthrax episodes and with this series on Lyme's disease, we've had a month straight of talking about you know, biological weapons, but I, uh, I guess I just had bioweapons on the mind recently, and since I'm probably already going to get the warning on Spotify, and I could really care less, um, I mean, I, I also think that part of the reason that this has been on my mind is everything that's gone on with the COVID virus, you know, whether it be the Ego Health Alliance and Peter Daszak angle, or, you know, how, it supposedly came out of Wuhan, and there just so happens to be the Wuhan lab there with EcoHealth Alliance there, and how we have people in the American intelligence community who are involved with, you know, EcoHealth Alliance and the lab there, and then we have the NIH under Fauci, which is funding the lab and, and all this stuff, and we have all these things that can, you know, kind of lead us to think that COVID was a bioweapon. And then, you know, we have all the, the, the vaccine nonsense, you know, the experimental mRNA vaccinations and stuff that come as a result after all of this. And so I think that everybody has had this on their mind in some form or another. I mean, even if you're like a resistance, you know, boomer with pudding for brains, I mean, it's at least on your mind in the sense that you think that the people who believe this are... You know, of course, they have to be MAGA, Q-loving, Trump-loving, you know, idiots who themselves have mush for brains. But I have also, you know, kind of been disappointed with some of the coverage in the alt-media of stuff like COVID or the vaccines, you know, because you have people who jump to crazy conclusions that are baseless. And, you know, it doesn't make us look good when people say that, you know, 100% of people who get the COVID vax are going to die within a few years or, you know, say things that, you know, can be not demonstrably shown, like there's graphene oxide in, in the vaccines or something. Or, you know, you have people who, when they talk about COVID possibly being a bioweapon, that they only mention the, the China angle to it. And they, you know, try to paint it as a China bad kind of thing. When we actually saw, you know, shortly after the COVID outbreak first happened, you did have some neocon type people 
um, you know, and like the Committee for the Present Danger and stuff like that, who were trying to push this whole angle that China was responsible for COVID, um, you know, completely ignore the Eco Health Alliance angle and stuff like that to it. And even, you know, say things like China needs to pay reparations for all the people who got COVID and stuff like that, you know, so just crazy stuff, you know, war hawks who were trying to bait some kind of conflict with China. So, you know, I've been kind of disappointed with people on a lot of sides of the of the COVID conversation. But that's a long tangent. But basically, I mean, it's just that we see that there is a long history of U.S. biological weapons research. There's a long history of messing with viruses, stuff as gnarly as the plague and stuff like that. And it's not crazy to think that possibly COVID is some sort of leak of this kind of stuff. And I mean, we can observe that, you know, there was foot in hand, um, foot and mouth disease outbreaks inside of the Plum Island facilities. I mean, you can look that up on the Wikipedia page itself. You know, luckily those outbreaks ended up being restricted to the island. But I mean, in Lab 257, it recounts how they had to kill every animal on the island except for, um, I can't remember what it was. It was like some sort of special colony of ticks or something that they decided to keep around, you know, because uh, the there was a deadline on their research or whatever but i mean they had to you know keep the furnace basically constantly going for days and when they would slaughter these animals you know the room was you know basically covered from ceiling to floor and and animal blood and you know just throwing dead animal after dead animal into the furnace there and you know so we know that there's you know outbreaks of of, of stuff when people are doing this kind of research. I mean, uh, Willie Bergdorfer, who we mentioned, um, when he was doing research into Lyme, he would, I believe, be screwing around with a rabbit and testing things on a rabbit, and the rabbit would, he'd get rabbit piss in his eye, and then he would have these lesions grow on him, or not lesions, he would get um, a series of rashes on him which he you know appeared after this infected rabbit urine rabbit urine splashed into his eyes you know another one of the things there's a picture of his rash and bitten i'm gonna have to make a thread about lyme's disease for twitter and get people to you know come give some love to this episode and if i do that when i do that i'm gonna i'm committing to it right now i'll have to put some pictures up that I've discovered in the bitten book for everybody's consumption on the thread because there's some really interesting pictures. But anyways, we know that sometimes these kinds of outbreaks happen and that things happen when people are doing this kind of research. So it's not crazy when you take into account all the things that we know going around at the Wuhan Virology Lab and all the Eco Health Alliance madness that's going on and, you know, Fauci and all the type of stuff that they do that, you know, there could have been some sort of possible leak or maybe it wasn't even intended as a leak. Maybe it was meant to be a warfare against China and that there was some kind of unintentional blowback and it turned into this international pandemic, you know. And uh, I feel like I've heard people say that, like, oh, it can't be... Uh, you know, a bioweapon, if they're going to do that, it'd be much more deadly. Sometimes that's not the point. Sometimes the point of creating a bioweapon is to 
you know, make it to where you use a lot of resources of a country and you overwhelm their hospital systems and then it makes it easier to come in and control them and, and whatnot. But anyways, I'm getting on a big digression here, but I feel like that's why it's been on my mind recently. And I feel like, you know, the subject of biological weapons and messing with viruses, gain of function type research, trying to make, you know, zoological viruses all of a sudden, you know, be able to infect humans, you know, say you've got a weird bat coronavirus, <laughs> and then you do gain of function research to all of a sudden it's transmissible to humans or, or what have you. I mean, I feel like all this type of stuff has kind of been on the collective conscious recently, but at the same time, I think that people are getting sick of hearing about COVID. I mean, people were locked down in some places much longer than others. You know, some of you guys who are in the in the bigger cities, I'm lucky that I live in a place where the lockdowns weren't quite as obnoxious and tyrannical as they are in some other places. But I know that a lot of you guys, you know, are coming from places like Chicago or New York or or whatever. You know, sometimes I can see the location of where I have certain listeners of in my metrics, you know, and so I know that a lot of you guys had to deal with stuff that was a lot harsher than I had to deal with. So, you know, I'm grateful for my fortune in that respect, you know, so I think that people are kind of sick of of hearing about it. But I think that this stuff about, you know, whether it be the anthrax attacks, which, you know, have a direct connection with people like Jerome Power and the different simulations, the similarities between Dark Winter and Event 201, has a direct correlation between stuff that, you know, is now going on currently, um, or at least in the not-so-distant past. Um, you know, so it's something that's kind of instructive for us in our modern age as the, you know, war on terrorism becomes the war against the terrorist virus, the ultimate invisible enemy, you know, because terrorism used to be this thing where, oh, there could be, you know, your your friend could be a terrorist. You never know. I mean, it could be anybody. It could be lurking behind any quarter, um, corner. But now we have, you know, viruses. We went from the, you know the fear of terrorism to now we're in the you know biomedical stage of fear propaganda um you know not you know definitely not saying that covid is fake i mean it's 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 a real virus and to say that it's fake actually just takes away culpability from the people who are probably responsible for its creation and ultimately its leak into the world but Anyhow, I think all of this stuff is instructive for us in that sense, and we can learn a little bit of our current time, and it's good to have examples of these to where when you're talking to someone who's somewhat receptive, I mean, don't really get into debates with people. I, I've done that before, um, not with you know necessarily with code. I'm sure I have at some point, but just... It tends not to work, people, you know, but um, I mean, if you're having a conversation with someone who's receptive and they're finding it kind of hard to believe that something like this could happen, you can whip up the, you know, the the tick experiments that we can prove that we're going on and we can, you know, talk about the anthrax attacks. We can talk about all these other examples that are on the books. You know, you can talk about Fauci messing with the with the damn beagles. Leave the beagles alone. Something that all this research has made me realize with all the testing that they've done on animals and stuff. I mean, maybe I'm, you know, coming to two rash of a conclusion when it comes about this but man people who do animal experimentation especially with like biological warfare agents and chemical agents 
they might just have to be put in front of the fire line. They maybe should be tied blindfolded to a post and just, you know, let the glizzy rip on them. Really upsetting stuff, but hey, that's probably not very Christian of me, but maybe it is. I don't know. But anyhow, it's been a fun time talking with y'all. If you've made it through all the rambling portion at the end of the podcast, and if you enjoyed that rambling, and if you've enjoyed my show in general, I would encourage you to leave a review on Spotify or Apple if that's what you're using. And also, if you have a friend who you think might find this stuff interesting, send this show to a friend. I'd love for you guys to spread the word so that way we can just keep growing the Things Observed community and we can, you know, maybe get this show to where if I could just monetize it just a little bit, I'm not even trying to make a living or something, but I could maybe justify coming up with more than one episode a week or something like that in the future and, uh, you know, just spend more time working hard for you guys because, uh, Coming up with podcast is very fun, but it can be work sometime. But anyhow, I don't know why I'm talking about money, getting all greedy and stuff, trying to become a fat cat. What's wrong with me? But yeah, if you like it, send it to a friend. Leave a review on your respective podcast listing app if that's an option. Um, send it to your grandma. Send it to your grandpa. Send it to your uncle. Listen to it at a family gathering. Go into restaurants and listen to my show while you eat your food at an obnoxious volume. And like bring a Nintendo Switch 2 and play that and eat alone somewhere and do that. Listen to things observed with your portable speaker at a Ruby Tuesdays and annoy everybody. But then they'll ultimately be grateful because they'll be like, you know what? I learned something today. I have a new way to look at the world. I don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. I'm just rambling at this point. guess I like to talk for talking's sake. But anyways, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm going to come out with some more stuff here in the soon future. So stay tuned. Stick around. We're going to have all kinds of new exciting subjects to tackle. And I'll try to keep things nice and juicy for all my loyal listeners. And we can... Dive into things that are interesting and maybe you haven't heard about. I, um, I'm always on the lookout for a subject that is appealing to people in our kind of sphere, but maybe you haven't heard about, you know, um, need to try and steer away from talking about things like, you know, basic 9-11 stuff or whatever that a lot of you guys have come into contact to with and, you know, stick to interesting stuff that might be new and fresh for everybody but anyhow my name is luke marshall this has been things observed had a great time talking with you and i look forward to the next time that we can talk again and i need to get back to moving things so that way i can decide which plush estate it is that i'm going to move into and you know maybe the the beverly hills or or something like that or, you know, and then I'm going to have to get all my podcasting equipment, you know, my laptop and my microphone into my new uh, recording studio atop the One World Trade Center. So anyhow, love you all. Take care. Talk to you all soon.